I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. Be looking at verses 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. And if you're new here, you should be aware that we have no shortage of boys running around with various toy weapons in their hands before and after the worship service. We try to contain them somewhat, but we also want them to know that they can remain boys at church. Not necessarily in the service do we want them shooting at each other, throwing things, but it's okay to run around and to, and to yell and to have their weapons. And here's what I want to say right off the bat. Boys, if you aren't running around with daggers strapped to your right thigh or held in your left hand, calling yourselves Ehud this morning, then I'll consider this sermon to have failed. This is a, an exciting account that should excite all of you, especially the boys among us. And it's certainly a deeper purpose. It has a deeper purpose than just giving something for boys to reenact. Okay? But our explanation shouldn't clean up the text so much that we sissify Ehud. Right? He was a, a bad dude. And he did some work that few people were capable of doing. And the cycle of Israel's rebellion was on repeat. Comes right back up once, once uh, Othniel died, the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. They were hopeless. Right? Apart from the Lord's intervention, they could not turn back to the Lord. They got themselves trapped in their sin. So they could not find a way out. And Ehud's sense throughout this passage is that he was on a divine mission, that he was being guided and he had been raised up by the Lord for a particular purpose, and he accomplishes that purpose without hesitation. He is absolutely a hero that we should look to, with thank, with, that we should thank the Lord for. And here's what I believe the theme of this text would be, is that our faithful God goes to great lengths in order to preserve his faithless people. Our faithful God goes to great lengths in order to preserve his faithless people. And so we'll see that here in this passage. Before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, once again, we open ourselves to a passage that is... In for many, a challenge to understand, and certainly a challenge to apply. We wonder who it is that we're supposed to imitate, who it is we're supposed to emulate here, which character represents us, which character represents Christ. Lord, help us to understand. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear and, and hearts that are softened to this truth that we would be challenged by this text. And that we would apply it according to your will. Lord, may you be glorified. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me. Judges chapter did what was evil in the sight. And the people of Israel again did what was evil 
in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he was near Gilgal and said, read the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Seirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we start off here with this downward spiral. Of Israel. Right? It continues. And just as a, a, that cycle continues, we also see the cycle continuing of the Lord raising up a deliverer. He raises up Ehud, Israel's deliverer, after their own idolatry had led them into 18 years of slavery in Moab or to the Moabites under King Eglon. 
And so the first principle we see here is that Israel's fidelity was dependent upon outside pressure, right? Their faithfulness to the Lord was dependent upon the Lord raising up a judge who could deliver them from their idolatry, from their slavery. And so the Lord, once again, hears their cry after handing them over to the powerful King Eglon, he then raises up a skilled warrior to assassinate him. And this man, Ehud, is described as being left-handed. And some have taken that in the wrong direction and said, well, that means he's deceitful, that he's, that he's cunning and crafty like a snake. And in one sense, he is cunning. Right? He's, he's got a strategy, a military strategy that he utilizes, but this was war. This was a time of war. And his, his being left-handed didn't make him untrustworthy. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means bound in the right hand. That's how it defines someone who is left-handed. It means they're, they're they don't use their right hand. doesn't mean that their right hand is crippled or un- incapable of being used. And in fact, the Septuagint oftentimes, usually, in fact, translates left-handed as ambidextrous. I mean, these people were, were able to use both hands. And there's a reason for that. Look at chapter 20 in Judges. Go back to chapter 20, verses 15 through 16. Let me remind you as well that Ehud was a Benjaminite. He was left-handed, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And what we read in Judges chapter 20, verses 15 and 16, is this. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. They were precise. These were skilled warriors. Their left-handedness was indicative of, of how they had been trained. Right? It was an example of the fact these were the elite soldiers. These are the ones who had been trained for the extra difficult tasks. And that's what Ehud is a part of. Ehud's a part of this squadron. You see it again in First, uh, First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. So these are the skilled ones. These are the elite ones. Out of the, the 26,000 men, it's 700 of them. It's a very small portion. He comes from a very small group of elite soldiers who have been trained for particularly difficult military challenges. And that's who the Lord raises up for this task. Not only is he trained in this way, but he's, he creates his own weapon. A double-mouthed sword. A sword with two edges. That's how the Hebrew, the literal translation is a double-mouthed sword. Most likely did not have a cross piece so that when, it, when he stabs it into Eglon, it goes all the way through. 
And this weapon would have been rare for the time, but not unheard of. And, it, and it, the, the emphasis upon it in this passage is much like the epics of Homer. They emphasize, emphasize weapons. Right? It's, it's, it's setting this guy apart as a specially trained warrior. And one of the means by which the Lord preserves his people, one of the means by which he has done so throughout history is through the efforts of elite military forces, right? We should be grateful that we have such men in our nation who have done the difficult task of of training, of sacrifice, of being prepared and educated, going through trial after trial for the tasks ahead of them to defend our freedom. We should be grateful for men like Jocko Willink. And I, I was given a, a gift of, by this Navy SEAL, not just any Navy SEAL. He, he was the commander of the Navy SEALs of the most decorated SEAL unit during the Iraq War. In fact, he had under his command Chris Kyle, known as the American Sniper. And this was a elite, this was the elite of the elite. And Jocko is, was their commander. He's written a book called Extreme Ownership, talking about leadership, applying the principles of the Navy SEALs to leadership in, in, in any sphere of life. But he's written some books recently for, uh, like chapter books, specifically targeting boys, called The, the Way of the Warrior Kid. And I think it's an important thing for him to be doing. And, and something of a trend that I see as a good thing. Because when there are only two genders, and let's be clear, there are only two genders in this world. And everything in our culture begins catering to one in response to a feminist agenda. The inevitable result is that boys are neglected. That boys do not know how to be boys. And so it's books like this where they're training boys to be physically and mentally fit for life. Right? Training them to think about exercise, physical fitness, but not just that, but mental fitness, reading. Some of the examples in the books, is about, uh, uh, he's facing bullies. The, the kid's name is Mark, and he's in fifth grade in the first book. And he faces a physical bully, one who threatens him with his fists. And in, in the second book, it's a psychological bully, one who mocks him and makes fun of him and who he has to determine a, a different way of defending himself. He's not going to fight the man with his fist. And that's not being a man just going around as a, uh, with your chest puffed out, ready to fight everyone who disagrees with you. But he's teaching them, training them up. And, and this kind of elite training to eliminate evil, it begins in childhood. Right? It involves great sacrifice, and elite soldiers endure in their training because they are disciplined individuals, and so we should be teaching our boys to be disciplined. Right? A lot of that training takes place well before they get to boot camp. So Ehud's training gave him a particular skill, and one of those skills was to plan and to strategize this assassination says that he had a secret message. He comes to the king and he says, I've got a secret message for you. 
We, we begin here in verse 19. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped. Um, sorry, I'm back in chapter 20. Uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilcal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. He turns back at the idols, probably idols that had been set up by Eglon. And it's almost symbolic that he turns back at that point. He turns back to carry out this plan. And sending the rest of the men who came with him on this tribute to, to their homes, he goes back alone. And he tells the king, I have a secret message for you now. In the Hebrew, the word message, devar, it can be translated word. It can be translated thing. And so the reader would have in mind here that Eglon is hearing that he has a secret message or a secret word for him. But we know that Ehud has something under his clothing, a secret thing, his sword that awaits the king. Right, so there's a play on words there. He easily secures, because of his, his um, explanation that he has a secret message slash thing for the king, he sends out his um, guards, which was common. If you wanted to speak to the king, you would do so alone. Everyone else would depart. And he acknowledges that he has something from God. The secret message, uh, verse 20, Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Once again, we see Ehud, he's been raised up by the Lord, and now we see he recognizes that this particular mission is from God. This is a divine mission he's been given. And he assassinates Eglon. Now, Eglon... Uh, the meaning of his name is associated with a bull. Uh, some have called him like a fattened calf, right? Because there's references to his fat. But I actually think that's a bit misleading because when we think of a bull, a strong bull, we don't think of them as being Jabba the Hutts, right? Sitting on a throne, like like unable to move. Um, Star Wars wouldn't have been a great success if Skywalker had to slay the giant who couldn't move, right? Jabba the Hutt. They needed a Darth Vader, another warrior, another trained warrior. And in fact, the language here for fat does not mean obese. The way we translate fat, the way we think of fat, we think of someone who is billowing in, in, in weight, right? Who is well, we, we picture this, this king on a throne who's got you know, a, a big turkey leg in one hand and a bowl of ice cream in the other, and just slobbering all over the place, get away, you know. And, and, and no, this, this king, Eglon, is fat in the sense that he's healthy. And here's where I'll, I'll show you that. A synonym for fat is found in verse 29. The Moabite soldiers who were killed, it says they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong Able-bodied men. Able-bodied is a synonym for fat in Hebrew. And let me be even more clear. In, in um, 2 Samuel, or sorry, no, in Daniel. Let me go to Daniel first. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 15. Remember, Daniel 
and his friends decided to go on a, a vegetable diet because they didn't want to eat from the king's table. And it says, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. It's not that the vegetables had made them in 10 days over, overweight or even obese. They had become healthier, though. You could look at them and see that they were healthier. To be fat, in, in the Hebrew sense of the term, is to be strong, to be healthy. And so the, it also, in, in here where, where the sword goes into Eglon, it says that the fat covered the blade, and you might think, well, man, he was so big that when the sword went in, it just billows over the sword, and, and he can't, Eglon, you know, Ehud can't even pull it out. That's not what's happening here. He thrust it into his belly, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade for, because, the reason why the fat enclosed the blade is because he did not pull the sword out. He chose not to pull the sword out of Eglon's belly, so it stayed, and it began to be enveloped by the, the fat around his, um, his midsection. That's the specific kind of fat that's mentioned here is the fat that surrounds your entrails, which we all have, <laughs> right? You don't have to be overweight to have fat in your midsection. So... Uh, another example of this is Second uh, Samuel, verse or chapter one, verse twenty-two. It says, "From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back; the sword of Saul returned not empty." This is this is a, a song written after the death of Jonathan and Saul, and it's a it, it's a tribute to them, right? They were known for in battle, as being warriors who, who killed the mighty, who, whose swords had the, the fat of the mighty on them. That's, that's what that song is, is saying. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. It's not as if they went around finding all the fat soldiers and killing them. No, they were mighty in war. And so, I honestly think Eglon here is a warrior. And he's a, he's a strong and mighty king. And Ehud thrusts so forcefully into Eglon that excrement comes out. He has a discharge of his bowels. Draw that picture, kids. I mean, this is, a, this is, this is not really for, for humor, I don't think. Some have taken this text as being filled with irony. You know, the fat king gets slayed, and, and he's um, leaving dung on the ground next to his dead body. It's supposed to be a bit disgusting and a bit gruesome and a bit difficult to read and to imagine. And there's some, some challenges with verse 23 when Ehud goes out onto the porch because if you read it the way our ESV translates it, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber and behind him and locked them. 
So you say, okay, well, how does that happen? How do you go out of the door of where Eglon is laying dead, close them, and lock them from the outside? Most locks aren't on the outside. They're on the inside. Did he somehow find a key to lock the door and get away with the key? That's possible. Others have gone even so far as to say that he, he had a string on the inside that he was able to attach to the lock and, and maneuver it. and make it. It's actually much simpler than that. In the Hebrew, you can certainly translate it as this. Ehud went out of the crawl space having, having already shut the doors of the throne room upon himself and locked them. So from the inside, he locks them, and then he goes underneath the crawl space of this chamber, whatever it is. And in my opinion, it's, a, it's the throne room. Right? They're still in the throne room which obviously, as we see in the next passage, includes some bathroom somewhere around there because that's what the guards think that he's doing. He must be relieving himself. Why would they think that? Well, because excrement is on the ground and they're smelling a stench. And so they wait until it's embarrassing them before they finally uh, open it up, open up this room. But either way, the, the description of this passage fits with what we know of archaeological um, structures during this time. The Bithalani floor plan was something that even Solomon's temple was modeled after. And so this, this um, left-handed assassin knew what that structure was like. He knew where he could go to escape. He knew how to find a crawl space to escape through. Dale Ralph Davis says, learning to, uh, talking about learning to ride a bike, and, and he remembers the, the time when his dad just pushed him out from the driveway, and he was expected to turn onto the sidewalk, and he knew he had to turn. His dad taught him how to turn. He told him how, how to look out for, for um, things in your path and to make sure you're able to turn around them. He knew all that he needed to know, but he just couldn't turn, and so it came down to it. He, he runs himself right into a car, into the back of a car. His point is that even though he had all the right knowledge, he, he couldn't get himself to do it. And in this case, Israel knew they needed to turn to the Lord, but they needed someone else to do it for them. Right? God sent someone who could turn back on behalf of the Israelites. And notice the, the complete lack of role that the Israelites played in this section. Ehud separates himself from the convoy and he turns back in verse 19 in order to carry out this assassination. They couldn't help him. In fact, had they followed him and tried to incorporate, tried to involve themselves in this mission, it would have been compromised. Ehud had to defeat Eglon and the bondage to idolatry that Eglon represented on his own, much like Jesus Christ, right, had to defeat sin on his own. All we would do is compromise his mission if we try to save ourselves. So Ehud's assassination of Eglon was just the beginning of his mission. Right? He escapes while they're trying to figure out what's going on with the king, the guards are at the door. You can imagine their conversation. They smell something immediately. Okay, it's probably we should give him some privacy, give him some space. Let's, let's not interrupt him. 
And they say, you know, it's been a long time, and I don't, I don't hear anything. It's, well, I'm not going in there. You go in there. I'm not, you know, I mean, they're going back and forth like this for a while until they're so embarrassed it's with the length of time it's been that they get the key and, and enter. And all this time, Ehud has escaped, and he's outside now calling Israel together, sounding the trumpet. Now you see the involvement of the Israelites. And again, he knew. Once again, we see Ehud knows this is a mission from the Lord. This is a mission that he has given him. He tells them in verse 28, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Gives them a promise, a confident promise. And how do the people respond? They first recognized Ehud as their leader. They believed in the promise that he, that he gave them. And then they, alongside Ehud, defeat 10,000 Moabites. Able-bodied, strong and able-bodied men. Every one of them is defeated. So Ehud's leadership and his delivery of the Lord's promise of victory inspired a lethargic people, a people who had been in slavery for 18 years, who most likely hadn't even been thinking about the Lord until they cried out to him. And now he raises them up to join alongside Ehud and to fight against Moab. And so after Ehud, we read this one verse about Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Another example of God raising up someone with an unlikely weapon, an ox goad, to save Israel. Shamgar is only mentioned here and one more time in chapter 5, verse 6, in the song of Deborah and Barak, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. And so Shamgar doesn't have a, 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 we don't know a lot about Shamgar, but we know that God used him in an unlikely way to save his people. He says the same thing to us as Ehud. But ultimately, they were inadequate judges. Ehud, as well as Shamgar, they were not able to conquer death. And at their death, people turn back and do what's evil. We'll see it again next week. So they could not bring lasting change into the hearts of God's people. And so my question to you is, has your faith wavered. Maybe you're in a season of doubting. Have you been lethargic to participate in the mission of God? Let this be the reminder of God's promise to you that you're never beyond his reach. Right? In every generation, God has raised up leadership to inspire and to provoke his people to turn away from their idols, to be equipped to defeat the evils of their age and to enjoy the victory that Jesus Christ has secured for them. The only question is, will you join that mission? Will you hear that trumpet call? 
to be a part of the Great Commission. Our faithful God goes to great lengths in order to preserve his faithless people. Wherever you are, whatever state of your faith is, that, that is a call that is being sounded to you, challenging you to turn back to him. His training, I think, very practically reminds us that we should be thankful that God raises up and preserves his people even through elite military forces. Ehud's secret dagger or sword was, just like the cross of Jesus, an unexpected way to defeat evil, to eliminate evil. And his escape points to the resurrection of our Lord who conquered death once and for all, who sent his son to, to, to gather together the troops for battle. Right? Everyone here from all ages has something to learn from this passage. Ehud was a great deliverer, but his primary role is to point you to the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, who rescues us, who calls us to turn away from evil and to submit to his sovereign lordship and to follow him. So let's thank him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this 